Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. Hello and welcome to the new Arab Voice. It's Friday the 3rd of December. My name is Hugo Goodridge and I'll be your host today, coming to you from London. This week we look at the military coup gripping Sudan and examine the barriers to full civilian rule. The Sudanese armed forces have intervened in national politics and taken power uh, on numerous occasions since independence in 1956. By one count, they've mounted 15 coup attempts, or various officer factions have mounted 15 coup attempts, of which about half a dozen succeeded. And elected civilians have governed the country for only about six years in the past 66 or so years. And then Aisha Aldris looks ahead to the Middle Beast Festival in Saudi Arabia and asks whether the event will witness the same high levels of sexual harassment that were seen in 2019. Everyone was happy for, for women and men to, to come and attend. Um, but what happened is, that because there's no foundation for, you know, no gradual change for this transition to happen in the society. So then men from different kind of generations, the younger one and the older one, they are not yet ready for it. But first... At least 23 countries from five of six WHO regions have now reported cases of Omicron, and we expect that number to grow. As 2021 draws to a close, many hoped that the coronavirus would also be on the way out. Clearly, it had other ideas with the discovery of the Omicron variant. Here to discuss the latest variant is new Arab journalist and friend of the podcast, Rosie McCabe. Hi, Rosie. Hi, Hugo. The Omicron variant was discovered in southern Africa. Is it now in the Middle East? Well, yes. A few countries in the Middle East have reported cases of this new COVID-19 variant, first sequenced in South Africa and now found in over 20 countries globally. However, not everyone has detected cases in the region which prompts more questions than provides answers. Are cases worse than we know, but there's a lack of testing or reporting? Or is the strain not as bad as we think? Saudi Arabia and the UAE have both detected cases. Saudi Arabia's state-run press agency said on December the 1st that one of its citizens tested positive for the variant after coming from a North African country. The UAE reported its first case late Wednesday, describing the infected individual as an African woman who travelled from an African country through an Arab country, without specifying which nations. The woman had received both doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. Four people have reportedly tested positive for the COVID strain in Israel. There are also dozens of suspected cases in the country, with numbers expected to rise significantly by the end of the week. An Israeli doctor, one of the first people in the world to become infected with the variant, believes he caught the virus at a cardiology conference in East London last week. Iran said on November 30th there was no evidence of the strain in the Islamic Republic, but it is monitoring the situation closely. Other countries in the region have not reported a case yet. 
Is there any indication about how quickly this new variant will spread? There is lots of uncertainty about the health risks posed by this new variant. As time goes on, scientists and researchers will learn more about how this mutation spreads and how dangerous it is. The reason why the WHO classified the variant as one of concern so early on is because, quote, it may spread more quickly than other forms, end quote. Omicron's unique genetic structure translates to multiple changes to the spike protein that might make it more contagious and harder to control via current vaccines. One researcher, quoted by the Times, estimated that Omicron's R rate, the number of people an infected person goes on to infect, is above 2. This means that 10 people would infect 20 people. There is also the fact that infections have risen sharply in South Africa, one of the first places Omicron was detected. In Gauteng province, South Africa, COVID cases started rising rapidly at the end of last month. Do we know how dangerous this new strain is? Well, in terms of its impact on people, again, there is a lot of uncertainties at the moment. What we do know is mostly anecdotal evidence. Initial cases appear to have been mild, and there are no deaths associated with the new variant reported yet. However, all the way through this pandemic, it has been clear COVID affects different people in different ways. The big question now is, do current vaccines provide protection against this new strain? Experts told the BBC that current vaccines are not an ideal match, so might not work as well. But that doesn't mean they'll offer zero protection. An Israeli TV channel reported that people boosted with the Pfizer vaccine have 90% protection against Omicron. This was a news piece many latched onto. However, scientists and subsequent articles have questioned the validity of this data, given that South Africa has no boosters and few are infected in Israel. A study from medical journal The Lancet found that COVID booster shots do dramatically strengthen the body's immune defences. Whether this provides protection against the new variant is yet to be confirmed. And how have countries reacted to this new variant? The World Health Organization recommended, among other things, increased surveillance of the virus genome and ramping up mitigation measures such as mandatory mask wearing. Governments in the Middle East and beyond have followed some of these precautions, initiating health probes and imposing strategies to curb infections. The main reaction from countries in the Middle East and others has been travel restrictions. Israel was the first country to shut its borders completely. It has banned the entry of all foreigners to the country for 14 days and mandated that Israelis must quarantine on arrival, even if they are vaccinated. Morocco also suspended all incoming international flights for a two-week period. Iran imposed a ban on travel from seven African countries in response to the new strain. No passengers from the seven countries, including South Africa and Botswana, will be accepted in Iran. Iranians arriving from these countries must have two negative PCR tests. Egypt, Kuwait, Oman, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have also stopped incoming flights from a number of African countries. Rosie, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Hugo. October 25th, Sudanese General Abdul Fattah al-Bohan appeared on national television 
to declare a state of emergency across the entire country. It was the start of a military coup. Sudan's president, Abdullah Hamdok, was quickly detained. And in the days and weeks that followed, other political leaders opposed to military rule would also find themselves locked up. Internet and phone services were both cut. Burhan also announced the dissolution of the Sovereignty Council. This was established in 2019 after a different military coup pushed Sudan's former president, Omar al-Bashir, out of office. It was comprised of a mixture of civilian and military figures and was designed to be an instrument for Sudanese civilians to take control and forge their own destiny. The most recent coup by Burhan and his supporters in the military have cast this dream of self-determination and democracy into limbo. What happened in Sudan? Why are military coups such a recurring theme? And what's next for the country? First things first, what happened? The most recent coup, in fact, started a month earlier, on September 21st, with a different coup attempt. It lasted just a few hours before being suppressed. And while failing in its objectives, it did plant the seeds for what was to come. Protests and sit-ins began the following day on September 22nd. Um, and, and these protesters called for the military to take over because they said they were dissatisfied with the way things were. They didn't feel consulted. They didn't feel included in the political dispensation. This is Khulod Khair, the managing director of Insight Strategy, a think-and-do tank based in the Sudanese capital, Khartoum. That was an, a, a sort of a disaster, if you will, because the, the numbers that they thought they were going to get, losing the official civilian forces, were actually much, much fewer. And the number of people who ended up being at the sitting were, on any given night, around 50 or so. In response to these protests, pro-democracy activists and Sudanese supportive of a civilian-led government flooded the streets. These mass protests were uh, much, much larger in, in, in size, and they were much, much more representative in terms of demographics. And they were all calling for a civilian a transition to be given a chance, for Hamdok to be given more and more time to make good on some of these um, promises um, that he had, particularly around economic reform. Despite this outpouring of democratic support, the wheels for Sudan's latest coup were in motion. And when October 25th did come around, and the military did seize power, the response from protesters was an even more emphatic rejection. At the top of their demands was democracy and an end to military interventions in Sudanese politics, as this protester put it to AFP. The road to come is still long. The time of the military rule has come to an end and we don't want to come back to it. We also want elections, according to the Constitutional Declaration. As quickly as protesters took to the streets, military violence followed. Since protests began, at least 42 people have been killed, including 15 in a single day. Claims that the military used live ammunition against protesters have persisted. Almost one month after the coup, 
and with intense protests continuing, Sudanese Prime Minister Hamdok was released and a deal was signed by himself and the coup's leader, General Burhan. The deal saw Hamdok reinstated to his office, but did little, if anything at all, to limit the powers or the reach of the military, with some saying it was signed at the barrel of a gun. The deal was an attempt to quell popular unrest, but by all accounts failed to achieve what the coup leaders hoped for. Protests have continued and the deal scorned. The reinstatement of Prime Minister Hamdok is, I find, purely cosmetic. This is Yazid Sayer, a senior fellow at the Malcolm H. Kerr Carnegie Middle East Centre. He's been shorn of any significant power. His political role in the transition has been very severely reduced. And the military have paid no price whatsoever for having mounted a coup, nor are they offering a price in return for restoring or regaining international recognition and assistance. I don't think that this is uh, something that Western governments should accept at all. The October 25th military coup was preceded by the 2019 military coup that ousted autocratic ruler Omar Bashir from office. He rose to prominence in 1989 after leading a military coup. And if you look back at Sudan's history, you'll see a pattern emerging. The Sudanese armed forces have intervened in national politics and taken power uh, on numerous occasions since independence in 1956. By one count, they've mounted 15 coup attempts, or various officer factions have mounted 15 coup attempts, of which about half a dozen succeeded. And elected civilians have governed the country for only about six years in the past 66 or so years. Such a high number of military coups and the relatively low amount of time that civilian-led governments have been in power points to a real problem and clearly demonstrates the challenges facing pro-democracy activists today. This is a a highly politicised and interventionist military. So there's a very strong legacy of the military putting its views forward, if not simply its core interests forward. And as partly as a result of this, Sudan has seen almost endless wars, uh, starting with the secessionist movement in the south, that eventually led to the independence of South Sudan in 2010, uh, in a conflict that overall cost over 2 million dead, not to mention other conflicts, including war crimes and genocidal behaviour in the western parts of the country in Darfur. So this is a military that not only is interventionist, but actually has very little of a success story to show for its interventions and no real legitimacy to claim um, a superior a commitment to the national interest than that of the civilians, of any civilians. Over time and with successive coups, the nature of the military in Sudan has morphed into a political operator. Khulod again. The, the trend has been that as time progresses, the periods of transition are shorter and shorter, and the periods of military rule are longer and longer. And that's because the military has, as sort of the only enduring political institution, in the whole country, has learned very well how to keep power. And one of the tactics that it has is to couple itself with a political party or a political movement or a political ideology. And what we have now is an Islamo-military coalition, um, which is the same that Bashir had and allowed him to stay in power for 30 years, much more than any other dictator. This particular model has had some successes. 
And this is this particular model that the current head of the army, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, is following. Time and time again, the military have become involved in the game of Sudanese politics. And this longevity certainly gives them the upper hand when it comes to times of upheaval, as is currently being experienced. The military always is able to maintain the upper hand because they have figured out the weaknesses of the political parties. The political parties have to act as in unison, which, while they're in competition, is very difficult, and it makes them easy to sort of fragment. Whereas the military is, you know, one institution with that, you know, is not by any means completely unified, but it has that one command and control structure. They all have exactly the same interests in many cases. With all this in mind, it is perhaps unsurprising that in addition to the end of military rule in Sudan, pro-democracy activists are also demanding that reforms of the military are implemented. The military, absolutely, it needs to be reformed in the in the sense that it needs to be depoliticized. This is Jihad Mashamun, Sudanese researcher and political analyst. Depoliticize and understand its role is not to protect the party or only the state, but to protect the constitution and the civilians, and to change and to change the perception of the divide between the civilians and them. So there is what might be best described as an attitude problem within the army, seeing themselves as not just separate from Sudanese society, but above them. This attitude of superiority, says Jihad, is also being reinforced by the business interests of the army. The army has been infiltrated by the Sudanese Islamist movement since the 1950s. And a lot of these uh, companies of the Sudanese armed forces they are actually not paying taxes. They weren't paying taxes. And they saw themselves having a privileged position over the society. This perception has to be changed where the army needs to understand they have a respected role. Everyone, yes, respects them and admires them for or securing the state. But they also have a more respected role in protecting the citizens, protecting the constitution. This is not the first time that the issue of businesses owned by the army has been broached and was most recently raised by the US, who has been vocally critical of Burhan's coup and announced the withholding of aid. Yes, it again. We know that the regular army through the Ministry of Defence runs both a defence industry complex and a significant number of civilian commercial companies, in other words, companies that operate in the production of goods and services for the civilian market. It's not clear that anything has happened so far in the way of auditing and reviewing the books of these companies to find out what they actually own, where their money is, whether they're profit-making, and so on. Uh, We still have no data on any of this. So it's possible that the military haven't actually done anything. Part of the reason for taking power might have been their unwillingness to hand over their companies despite having signed a formal agreement and despite the United States making this one of the conditions for the resumption of full political and economic and financial support for the future Sudanese government. The politicisation of the military with their business interests are both reasons for reform of the military and certainly form part of the anger of those protesting on the streets. But there remains a place for the military in Sudanese society. So why are they so resistant to reform? The crimes that have been committed by the the army in several of Sudan's periphery, if you will, areas 
um, that are the conflict zones, but of course also the, the production zones. Um, and in, in those areas, there have been widespread accusations of crimes against humanity, uh, using rape as a weapon of war, all the way up to genocide. It's accountability for those crimes that keep the military wanting to gain power, uh, they think, um, as, as sort of a buttress against any accountability. The list of atrocities linked to the Sudanese military is as horrifying as it is long, and one which they do not want to be held accountable for. In particular, crimes committed in the western Darfur region, where between 100,000 and 400,000 were killed in a genocide, and crimes committed during the June 2019 clearing of a protest site in Khartoum, where security forces opened fire on peaceful protesters, killing at least 100 and injuring a further 700. Steps for accountability were taken, with the indictment against former President Omar al-Bashir by the International Criminal Court. It was the intention of the Transitional Council to hand Bashir over to the ICC, but October's coup has complicated the issue. While he was head of state and is accused of directing the violence against civilians, Bashir was not alone in committing crimes in Darfur. And for the October coup leaders, there is a genuine fear that a loss of immunity could see them heading the same way as part of a system of transitional justice in Sudan. Um, it, transitional justice looks like different things. It looks like the ICC, where Ahmed al-Bashir and a few others are indicted. It looks like uh, local, national or state-level courts, such as, for example, a court in Darfur that will look into some of these crimes that are not look, being looked at at the ICC. Then there are also truth and reconciliation type commissions, which function in, this, in a different way, and they're more about social culpability, social accountability, rather than a specific legal recourse. And then, of course, there are community-based transitional justice mechanisms, um, of which there are a variety that can also be looked at. The, the impasse that we have currently, which is causing the military to grip onto power, is that they think it really means the ICC, which is something that they find and not just a threat on their liberty, but also a threat to their national standing. It's, it's, it speaks to their legitimacy um, to be indicted by the ICC. But with the current crisis enveloping Sudan, and with the prospect that in the future a civilian government could be open to further military coups, the country may be left with little option but to offer immunity for past crimes. Yezid Sire. There are always issues of transitional justice and of, you know, the, the difficult question of do you offer an amnesty or not? And unfortunately, it's one of those things where there is no good answer. Often, if you don't offer some kind of protection or amnesty, then the transition doesn't happen at all. There are those, of course, who argue that if you do offer any kind of amnesty or forgiveness for past criminal behavior, then you're perpetuating the culture of impunity. And these are all very valid arguments, but there are no simple uh, responses that resolve this. I mean, let's not fool ourselves. Dealing with the official Sudanese military as part of a transitional justice is a mammoth task. But there is yet another factor which further complicates the issue. The rapid support forces, led by a military leader known as Hamati. This militia started out life as the Jean Javid militia, an Arab Sudanese militia that uh, was directly responsible for the killing of massive numbers of civilians of other atrocities in Darfur. 
and then aligned with the Bashir regime, and finally was transferred through a constitutional decree, was made into a state agency. But just because they were given the stamp of approval does not mean that the Sudanese army has to like them. Jihad again. They don't see the rapid support forces as highly competent trained forces. They see them as mercenaries. They're not nationalistic to the country or they don't have any allegiances or support for the country. And of course, they bothered that they didn't graduate from military colleges like them. A lot of the Sudanese army soldiers they, and other branches, they graduated from their respective colleges. But uh, the rapid support forces, they didn't really have much training or uh, discipline, which is what the army preferred, discipline and unity. The rapid support forces have shown what can happen with a lack of discipline. And the results are terrible to behold. When you look back at Sudan's modern history since independence, the idea of a military coup probably wouldn't come as a shock. But what did seem to come as a shock to the coup's leaders, General Burhan and Hamati, was the response of the people. They believed that the people would support this coup attempt again. They were going by, it was obvious, they seemed to believe that they, they could maintain this image that it was a popular coup. But then when they found the, the people protesting on the street, they were surprised actually by the behavior of the people. I think they didn't believe to what extent people, even if they didn't you know, particularly like elements of the pro-democracy forces, or they thought that they were slow or inefficient, that it didn't necessarily translate into support for them. And you, you know, we have to remember it was only two years ago that the Sudanese public came out and brought down a dictator. They were not likely to call for a new one to be installed. And yet somehow, Burhan and Hamidi seem to have miscalculated that. And that was their biggest miscalculation. Because almost as soon as the coup was felt, um, which is the morning of the 25th itself, um, there was mass protests. For the time being, and in spite of the recent deal signed by General Burhan and Prime Minister Hamdok, momentum against military rule remains. People at the end, they were protesting because they wanted a civilian government. They're tired of the military. They don't want a partnership with the military anymore because the military was always undermining the civilian cabinet from behind the scenes and also using their support from the former regime. But with momentum must also come vigilance. While the coup continues, the military's new sovereign council holds the power to place its supporters at the head of key institutions. The other issue with the sovereign council is that it has, amongst its new powers, it has made itself able to appoint the head of the National Election Commission, which means it will be in charge of deciding who uh, can register and who cannot, um, what the institutional boundaries are, uh, opening up uh, to potential gerrymandering and voter suppression, and the kinds of things that the Islamists sort of have used throughout Bashir's time to win elections. You know, there's a lot of work to be done, both uh, structurally, as well as politically, before any elections can take place. And that discussion, in many ways, hasn't even started amongst the pro-democracy groups. Um, it will, but even if it started, you know, a month ago, it is still too soon to have elections in 18 months. And of course, the military knows this, the Islamists know this. They are banking on their patronage networks, their previous constituencies, which haven't really gone away. And of course, their control over the National Elections Commission, 
to make to ensure that they win in any upcoming election. So really, anyone who's concerned about democracy being sort of set up, or at least democracy through elections being set up properly in Sudan, cannot really be in favor of elections the way that they will probably play out under this current agreement and with this current sovereign council. The Soundstorm Music Festival, organized by Saudi entertainment company Middle Beast, debuted in 2019 and was the largest music festival to ever occur in the region. It broke records with 130,000 visitors attending in a single day, outperforming the likes of Coachella and Tomorrowland. After putting the brakes on the festival due to COVID last year, Soundstorm will be back in the capital Riyadh from December 16th for a four-day event. While it's not the first music festival to be held in Saudi Arabia, the mixing of men and women, which was permitted by the notoriously conservative state, did mark a significant change for Saudi society. But sadly, the event gathered a wave of reports of sexual harassment in 2019, with some describing it as a mass sexual assault festival. Many fear 2021 could have a similar result. It was mainly directed towards females. Uh, I did not experience any harassment towards me, but I've seen it in front of me. And uh, to be frank, we tried to, to prevent it. We tried to stop it. But, you know, when, when a crowd crazy like that there, you, you cannot control anything, honestly. This is Abdullah, a Saudi citizen. He attended the festival in 2019 and bore witness to some awful events. What I saw there it was like a, a group of guys, actually, more than more than five. They were acting just uh, stupidly around. If, if, if one dude only or one guy trying to, to bother any girl, all of the others will stop her. And you, you cannot do anything unless... You are a group also. Abdullah said he only saw security at the gates of the event and that once visitors were inside, festival security made no effort to intervene in harassment he saw. Abdullah hopes that this time the authorities will use their power to prevent or stop the abuse. Apart from the harassment, apart from the annoying people, uh, I love the atmosphere. They can raise their efforts to secure the, the, the concert. Once you set uh, like penalties, or once you set like a, uh, some sort of punishment, then people will be afraid of, of doing such harassment. Reports of harassment also reached those who were in the VIP area of the event, unlike Abdullah, who acknowledged their experience was different to others. So I don't really know what it was like for the majority of the crowds. This is Farah, who had a VIP ticket to the event and lives in Saudi. Though she says she had a good experience, she did hear about cases of harassment. We did hear about the harassment. We did hear about these things, but I didn't experience anything. I did feel safe attending Middle Beast and I would go again. Following the 2019 event, the hashtag Taharrosh Middle Beast, translating to Middle Beast Harassment, spread like wildfire across social media, as event attendees said they witnessed and experienced sexual harassment. One Twitter user, Mona, said, The amount of sexual harassment was unbearable. I couldn't take two steps without a guy coming, trying to flirt or trying to touch me. I swear, it is so disrespectful how these humans act like wild animals. 
A Snapchatter's video also circulated on the app. She said, I hated the crowd. The level of sexual harassment at that concert was just ridiculous. I'm just dancing because that's what you do at a concert. And I can't dance without someone interrupting or trying to come up all on me. If any female is just standing around, people walk by trying to grope you up and feel on your body. That's ridiculous. One Snapchatter made a video about her experience after attending the concert, which also circulated on Twitter. One young woman I spoke to said she was harassed at the event too, though she did not wish to appear on the podcast and speak publicly about her experience. Middle Beast did not respond to any of our questions, but instead sent us this pre-prepared statement. Our efforts are particularly focused on ensuring that every person can enjoy the event without fear of harassment or unwanted approach or contact. Middle Beast has a zero-tolerance policy on written, verbal or physical harassment or threats, unwanted touching, sexual suggestions, the use of derogatory or discriminatory language, gestures or actions intended to threaten, or that are sexually suggestive. Violation of this code of conduct may result in immediate removal from the event site without a refund and the appropriate authorities will be alerted. By appropriate authorities, Middle Beast are referring to legal authorities. The company also said they are supporting a new anti-harassment campaign called Respect and Reset. This is aimed at education, prevention and support resources. And they say attendees can expect timely responses to reports of harassment. Although, it is not known if the victims of sexual harassment or those perpetrating the crimes will engage with the scheme. Some people, including psychotherapist Rasha Jorani, believe the mass reports of harassment could be due to the fact many Saudis are not used to mixing with the opposite sex on such a large scale. Everyone was happy for, for women and men to, to come and attend. Um, but what happened is that because there's no foundation for, you know, no gradual change for this transition to happen in the society. So then men from different kind of generations, the younger one and the older one, they are not yet ready for it. So you will see that they will, the women feel very much intimidated by going to these events. But I think the only way to, to move ahead with that is to assert, women need to assert themselves. Russia says she hopes the rules put in place will deter harassers moving forward. You know, when going to these kind of events, they need to make it crystal clear to people that sexual harassment or any kind of intimidation is not acceptable and there are penalties everyone will be scared of that because no one went to be locked behind bars so yeah i i i'm I'm hopeful that this will change gradually although rasha believes saudi wasn't ready socially for such a mass scale mixed festival both farah and abdullah who live in saudi say it was time for an event like this to occur in the region it's been a long time coming plus it was the right time to do this it's improved the economy it's improved the people it's improved the culture and the overall vision of the future for saudi so before you had the mentality of i need to travel in order to enjoy myself uh, because people were seeking such events it's changed everyone's excitement about the different things they want to experience we we celebrate life we love life we, we love to live we love to dance we love to sing it's a change to the positive and hopefully we will see more and more things to, to, to come also here in Saudi Arabia. The future is bright. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by me, 
Hugo Goodridge with Aisha Aldris and Rosie McCabe with additional help from Nick McAlpin, Taufik Wan and Safa Amma. Our theme music was by Omar Al Phil. The new Arab Voice will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region. <laughs>